Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. Um, but tell you what, let's, let's uh, get your Bible out, turn on your Bible, if that's your thing, uh, and let's bow our heads, and I'm just going to go ahead and pray, and we're going to get ready for tonight's message. Oh, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here, you're in our midst. God, we are asking now that you would speak to us. Lord, thank you that you give us your word that reveals who you are, reveals what you desire of us, um, but Lord, also that your Holy Spirit is here too, to illuminate that truth, to speak specifically to us. So God, I pray that every single one of us um, would be able to walk away from tonight hearing not just from your word, but directly from you into their heart, into their life. And Lord, we love you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, well, yesterday was a really rad day. We had our, our Better Days talks in here. Um, Wesley Town did an amazing uh, seminar on mental health and suffering and a biblical perspective on that. Got to go to the beginning of it and was like blown away. Um, I had some friends and family obviously attend the event and uh, met up with them later that night with tears in their eyes just talking about um, all that God did. So super stoked. Thank you for everyone who came to that. Um, also, tonight we are starting a brand new series, and so uh, Stephen Lozano, who played drums, did that amazing art piece for us. Isn't that cool? That's the actual San Diego skyline, uh, which I, I love even, uh, even more. And the idea behind this art piece, this whole series, is this summer we went on a, a journey talking about what does it mean to do what Jesus did, and uh, we kind of and we and we kind of just went went there, right? And we highlighted people in our community who were just doing amazing things for the gospel and for the kingdom. And I'm so glad that we did. But we had a couple people come up to me and say, "Hey, what does it look like for the kingdom of God to come in like my workplace, right? My nine to five, my cubicle. What does the kingdom of God look like in my family?" And um, such a valid question. And so we're going to be kind of uh, taking uh, the next few weeks just to talk about what does the kingdom of God look like? What is the purpose, the divine purpose of your everyday life, your vocation? If you're a student, um, is, God, is God's divine purpose for your life to be a student? What does that look like? Is it to continue to work at your job? Is If you're a stay-at-home parent, um, if you're retired, what, what is God's hand look like in your day-to-day life? And, and if you were like me, when I grew up, I had specific times and places where I had an expectation for God to move. Anyone else? I, for me, it was like summer camp. Like, I just kind of circled on my calendar, meet with God here. Like, that was, you know, not that I knew that like, God was everywhere and I'd pray and stuff like that, but like summer camp was like the spot. Like, I knew I was going to have a really cool moment with Jesus. And every once in a while, I would have like a good youth group night, you know, a little like afterglow worship session or something like that. And I kind of like segmented my walk with the Lord. And the reality is I had no theology or framework for 98% of my life. I was a follower of Jesus, so I, so I thought I was, believed in him, but I had confined God's movement, 
his delight, uh, his presence to specific times and spaces. And I really had no idea where he was active when I was at like high school, right? I couldn't wait to get to God's presence. Even though I had, I kind of ambiguously knew and ethereally knew that God's presence is everywhere, my hope today is that we'd walk out of this place tonight over the next few weeks and understand how God has a specific design and purpose for the majority of what we spend our waking hours doing. So um, let me show you a quick chart about um, how we spend our time. So this is the average American uh, from the age of 25 to 54 with children, how they spend their time on average uh, based on a pretty good statistical study. Uh, and so you'll notice hours here for, for leisure time, for eating, for caring for others, um, maybe sports, whatever. And, and then you have these two blue and green pieces of the pie. Blue is sleep, uh, which average Americans like 7.6. And I don't know what kind of kids they have, but <laughs> that would be really nice. Um, but the majority of it, the green section of the pie is your vocation, it's your work. This is where you spend the majority of your life. A majority of definitely your waking hours. And so I think it's a pretty important question of what, what does God have to say about that slice of the pie? What does God's word have to speak to that section? And how do we respond to it? How do we live into that? And um, I think one of the most helpful verses in the entire Bible that speaks to this is in Jeremiah 29. Uh, anyone ever familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11, right? It's on every single graduation card you ever get, <laughs> right? For I know the plans that I have for you, Lord. And you're like, I hope his plan's a $20 bill or something. Like, that's what every graduate's really looking for. Um, interestingly enough, that verse, as, as calming and reassuring as it is, is completely out of context. Not that that's not true. It's not that God doesn't desire for you to, you know, have good things happen. But I think it's important for us to understand that there's a larger story that's happening when that's being written. And it's one that speaks directly to your every single day life. So what has happened at this point in Israel's history is that they have been captured by Babylon returned home, and now they've been captured again a second time by Babylon. And as they've been brought, Babylon had this uh, brilliant uh, military strategy to wipe out the Jewish people, which was their goal. And they did that not just by killing them off, but killing their culture. And so they would take the working class, they took them to Babylon, so anyone who had position, education, wealth, health, anything, and they brought them into Babylon, and they figured after enough time they would become like Babylonians. And they left the weak and the defenseless uh, there in Israel along with their military to eventually just be swept away. So the, these a large majority of the country was brought to Babylon and they did something kind of interesting and in a certain way, I think kind of smart. They're like, well, we're gonna camp outside the city. We're gonna create our own little village outside and we're gonna keep our Jewish roots. And they really thought that that was kind of the best thing. And as they were doing that, they gathered prophets uh, that they would encourage and we find out even pay money to prophesy good things to them. Right, just like tell me something good, and so they would literally encourage and pay these prophets to tell them things like, 
You won't be here long. Don't have any children. Wait till you go back home. Don't contribute. You don't even need a job. Just hang out here outside the city, and eventually you're going to go back home where you belong. And all of a sudden, God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah. He's like, hey, I need you to go deliver an accurate message to these people. And this is what he says. It's quite interesting and has a lot to do with how we live our life. So this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city of Babylon to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares um, the Lord. So we have this direct message to the people of God saying, listen, listen. Stop hiding yourself away, listening to these lies. You're going to be here a while. So here's your plan, your exiles. And if you have a Bible, you can circle that word. That's going to be our theme tonight. This is how you ought to live as exiles. Now, you might be like, what, is, what in the world does that have to do with my job? What in the world does that have to do with my vocation or my studies? Well, it has a lot to do with it. Because in the New Testament, we find something very interesting. The moment you decide to follow Jesus, you become an exile. How so? Well, the minute you decide to follow Jesus, you exchange your citizenship from one here to a heavenly one, which means you no longer belong to this place. This is no longer your home. Um, Rather, you are looking towards a home. And, And so one of the favorite titles that the early church fathers gave to the people they're writing letters to, the congregations that they're pastoring, are sojourners, ambassadors, exiles. Let me just read you 1 Peter chapter 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. I love this idea. You are a chosen exile. And this word exile is this interesting Greek word, peripodemos. And peripodemos is the word for sojourner. And he, so he calls him, you're a chosen sojourner. This is not your home. You're on a journey. You don't belong here. Remember that. And he goes and continues his entire letter. This is the same Greek word that James uses for his uh, opening of his letter. And we find the author of Hebrews give a very similar address in chapter 11, talking about kind of this hall of fame, all the different people of faith throughout scripture. And he says this, all these people were living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting they were, here we go, foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, listen to this, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, this is fascinating. I want to make sure we think about this accurately. 
But we, this is not our home. We're foreigners, we're exiles, we're sojourners. And we are longing for our home. But here's, here's the mistake many people make. We think we're waiting to be evacuated. We're just waiting. We're like, oh, this isn't our home, so like, forget it. You know, litter, kick back, trash it, it doesn't matter. I'm going to be up to heaven one day. And so that's, that's incredibly inaccurate theologically. You see, the, the picture we see in scripture is not that someday we're going to get to our home. It's rather our home's going to come to us. This is what the scriptures tell us is that the home we're longing for is not someplace that we arrive, it's someplace that comes. Jesus is bringing, it says, the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem that he's prepared for us, the new heaven and the new earth, he brings down here. Now, that's a fascinating thought, and here's why. It means that when we begin to start living as biblical exiles and sojourners, we begin to start setting up camp now. We start bringing heaven here. And what's fascinating is the way that he says to do this probably looks a lot like what you're doing. It looks like work and vocation. It looks like the adding to human flourishing. It looks like the things that you might just be like, oh, it's your nine to five, and then I go and do my, my, mid, my real ministry. But according to this biblical idea, he says, no, 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 you're exiles. You're going to be here for a while. Set up shop. Live life. Add to the human flourishing that's around you. And he begins to unpack this. But before we, before we fully unpack what does it mean to live as exiles in this, in this world, I want to explain, I want to kind of reveal three ways not to do it. Three unbiblical ways to respond to being an exile. And we see these in the, in the scriptures. I've seen them in my life, and I'm sure you're going to resonate with them. Uh, the first one is this. It's those who add accommodation. It's those who blend in. So you're exiles, it's, it's the world, and I follow Jesus, but you know what? It's all good. You know, I kind of like the world. I kind of like the system. I kind of like the, the culture that's around me. And you just accommodate it. Uh, I'm sure you guys um, are familiar with that because you're living that kind of bent or you know someone who is. Uh, and by the way, this isn't something new. It's not like, oh, it's the millennials. No, no, no. <laughs> This was happening in the Bible. You see, when Paul writes his letter to the Corinthians, he's addressing this accommodation philosophy idea. He's saying, hey, listen, you're following Jesus, but you're doing everything the culture is doing. And he lists these incredibly, like, wildly grotesque acts. And he's writing to the church. And he's saying, you're you're doing everything that the world's doing. You don't look anything different. You're accommodating this. But there's a, there's a second stream here, and that's those and kind of fall into the fortification. And so those are the people who are like, okay, the world's bad, we're good, hide away. Protect us from the world. And this is oftentimes that uh, when people understand that Christians or understand they believe, they project that Christians are judgmental, uh, that they're hateful, that they're fearful, we'll kind of fall into this category. Um, there are people that are just hiding away. They're afraid of it, and they're like, no, forget it. Um, by the way, this is not new. This happened in the biblical times. There's a group called the Essenes. The Essenes were people who loved Yahweh, believed in God, and they believed that the best thing they could do is run away. So they ran to the mountains, carved out some caves, lived in the caves, and actually spent most of the time translating the Bible 
which I think sometimes is a pretty accurate picture of what the church has become. Ran away, we've hidden in our caves, and we've become experts at translating the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that that's bad. Obviously, you guys have known, you've been here more than a minute. I love the Bible. I nerd out on it all the time. But it's not the point. The point is that the word of God would transform us to go and be the hands and feet of Jesus into our world. And then thirdly, there is this whole stream that's um, under the idea of domination. So we're exiles. They're the world. We're going to beat them. <laughs> beat them into submission. Uh, we're going to out-argue, out-post on social media. We're going to just do whatever it takes to make sure they know that they're wrong and evil heathens um, because we're right. Uh, again, not new. Uh, this group in the Bible were called the Zealots. They're people who believe we're the people of God. They're conquering the people of God. We'll kill them. <laughs> and they, quite literally, they took this aggressive, dominating force. And so we, we see these, and so I want you to understand, these are not trends of culture or time. They're trends of being human. If we embrace the idea that we are exiles here longing for our heavenly home, we will naturally drift towards accommodation, fortification, or domination. And if we're not careful, we'll slide into one of those. I remember when I started following Jesus around junior high, high school time, I met all three of these very quickly. I remember when I first followed Jesus, it kind of happened because I grew up in the church, I grew up with a family who loved the Lord, and all of a sudden I realized that my friends at school did not, and I wanted to be liked by them, and I essentially lost myself doing whatever they wanted to do, whether it was alcohol or drugs or pornography or getting in fights, to the point where the school literally called my parents into the principal's office and said, he can't stay here. So here I am, and my parents have no idea. They're like, oh, sweet little Benji, right? And it's like, he can't go to school anymore. And they're like, my son just got expelled. Like, how did this happen? And I had completely lended into this accommodation ideology. I was like, I want the world and Jesus too. And it did not go well for me. So my parents did what every loving parents did. They took me out of that environment and said, hey, um, we're going to try homeschooling you, which is, which is a great decision. But as any homeschooler student knows, uh, you desperately need socialization. You need some friends. So they're trying to find like a homeschool group that I could kind of attach to and get connected to. And I remember, and eventually I found a great one. But the first one that I went to was one of the weirdest experiences I've ever had in my life. Um, I walked in there, and they immediately, it was, it was like they were grabbing their children underneath their wing to protect them from the evil public school kid. I kid you not, it was so weird. They're like, I'm like, hey, guys, and stuff like that. And they're like, oh, we can't hang out with you. I'm like, what? What's wrong? And they're like, oh, yeah, we, yeah. You don't tuck in your shirt. So I was like, <laughs> it was like this weird, like, I was like, oh, my, man. And, and, and like our first, again, I'm not bashing homeschooling. I, I, it was, ended up being a really great experience for me. But this first group that I had met, it was kind of this like fortification club. where like, the world is bad. You look like the world. Stay out. And then, after I'd encountered accommodation and fortification, eventually I convinced my parents a couple years later, after I started following Jesus, I'm going to go back to public high school. And so I decided that the best thing I could do was to dominate. So I started reading every theology book that I could as like a 15-year-old. I went to seminars, studied apologetics, because I was going to win every single argument. If anyone made fun of me for my faith, it was, like, it was, it was really fear. 
I was so afraid I was gonna fall into accommodation again that I just wanted to dominate. And so I don't care if you are a turn of the millennium, ancient Palestinian, or a high school student in La Jolla. We all can fall prey into these temptations because we don't know how to be exiles. We don't know what it looks like to be in the world and not of the world. It's a really catchy verse. But luckily for us, God gives us insight of how to live this out. So we're gonna go back to Jeremiah 29 and we're gonna look at some specific commands that God gives his people on how to live as an exile in this world and it's gonna blow your mind. Number one thing that we can take away that he tells them, he says, plant gardens, which I love because I just planted grass in my backyard so I'm feeling pretty good about this point right now. Um, but uh, to be honest, it has nothing to do with that at all. Uh, we have to understand he's speaking to an agrarian culture. They're farmers. So when he says plant gardens, we think of like, oh, man, that's so like progressive urban gardens, like super cool Jesus thing to do. Uh, maybe but probably more he's thinking, hey, if you're a farmer, farm. If you're a blacksmith, go make metal. Work contribute, add to human flourishing. So when he says plant gardens and eat of its fruit, that, that was simply say clock in, go do something, add, be of value to this city that has captured them. It's this shocking statement. They're like, wait a minute, we're waiting to be evacuated. It's like, no, 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 plant gardens. And this is, this is the best way we can understand this is, uh, is beginning to realize that our vocation, and by vocation, kind of the definition, this is a strong feeling or suitability for a particular career or occupation. It's your job, your trade, your schooling, what you, where you invest the work of your hands and your mind into. It says when you do that, you are acting with a divine purpose, which kind of brings up a whole lot of other questions, like, wait a minute, you're telling me when I go in and clock in in and out tomorrow, that there's a divine purpose, and the answer is, duh, have you ever had in and out It's clearly godly, <laughs> but even if it's not in and out right? If it's, you're going to the coffee shop, you're going to your class at the, at the community college, you're going to wake up and you're going to take care of your kids like you did the last few years before, you're going to go in and put on a suit and tie, you're going to go to your corporate thing, you're going to go run your, your startup business, or you're going to go be a good employee, whatever your vocation is, I, I want you to grasp this. This is a part of what it means, the divine purpose and call in your life to contribute to the life around you as a sojourner longing for a heavenly home home. And the reason why this is so vital is so many of the people that I run into and have these conversations with, they think that their solution is, I got to find a better job. I got to escape because what I'm doing here doesn't have any divine kingdom value. And I would just, according to this scripture and other scriptures included, I would just like to argue with that. I, I think, and again, there can be destructive occupations for sure. So I'm not, I'm not just saying every job's good. But I think for the most part, if you are adding value to human flourishing within our city, 
that you can wake up tomorrow morning with a divine sense of purpose. And you don't have to wait for another church service, another ministry opportunity to feel that because you have something to add and contribute to that. And, and so Amy Sherman wrote this amazing book called Kingdom Calling. And so she gives four ways, four vocational pathways of how God can use your workplace, use your vocation, again, whether it's at home, your student, um, you're, in the, you're in the military, whatever that is, how God could use your vocation to advance his kingdom. So here's four things that she points out. Number one, blooming where we are planted by strategically stewarding our current job. So uh, rather than thinking, how do I get out? And again, and God might be calling you to, that's fine. But what if first you said, Lord, Holy Spirit, why am I here and you might hate your job. And I'm not just saying stick it out for the point of sticking out, but I'm saying would you at least ask, Lord, how do I walk into my job that I can't stand with a new heart and new eyes to see what you see? So a couple of practicals. If people are attached to your job, if you have a boss, coworkers, clients, uh, people you're, you're, you're interacting with at all, that means there's souls attached to your job. And if there's souls attached to your job, you have kingdom potential. Because that's the currency of the kingdom, our souls, our people. So who can you go and love? Who can you go and honor? Who's that boss who's just awful to you? And you can go and say, you know what, I'm not because they deserve it, but because as unto the Lord, I'm going to go do that. Hey, you know what? All my friends are cheating on a test. I'm not going to because I believe that I'm actually helping build heaven's economy here. That's things in its right order. It's things as they should be. And so it's, it's beginning to just ask this, this, just say this prayer. Holy Spirit, open my eyes to where you might be at work in my place of work with my time, with my vocation. And, and if you pray that, I, I think God would just be giddy to answer that prayer. Don't you? Do you think that God wants a bunch of Jesus followers who are just frustrated 40 hours a week? Or do you think maybe, just maybe, he knows that the, that's the biggest piece of the pie and he has a plan for it? That the best employees, the best coworkers, the best bosses, the greatest educators, the greatest students, the greatest moms and dads were people who took that part of the, the pie and said, I'm going to take this seriously because God has a plan for it and a purpose for it. I'm going to live into it to the best of my ability. It doesn't mean I don't get frustrated or tired, but I'm going to prayerfully enter into that space and not waste it away waiting just to get out. I'm going to go bring kingdom life to it. Number two, donating our vocational skills as a volunteer. So maybe you're in, a, you're in a place of work that you don't really like, but maybe you could contribute what you do in another arena that's going to add value to the world around you. Um, it, 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 I love, I have, I have a friend up in LA who's a pastor, and there is this person who does, uh, is a brilliant designer um, for some pretty um, unchristian kind of agencies, has become interested in Jesus, and he said, hey, Rather than saying, hey, like, hey, go quit your job, you know, he said, hey, why don't you, would you come help our church? 
Would you add your skill set, your thing to sing? And all of a sudden, this person who's been living under this umbrella of like shame, things like that, it doesn't mean that God's not doing something or asking him to leave, but he's now giving his skill set, saying, hey, I want you to use this in a kingdom way. Number three, launching a new social enterprise. And so maybe at the end of the day, you're like, I cannot justify my job. How could you? How could you take a passion that you have and begin to invest that into the world in a new creative enterprise? Um, one of my favorite definitions of calling, of a calling that God gives on you, is when your passion meets the world's pain. It's a great way to start. Where does your passion meet the world's pain? That's a great uh, opportunity to pray, say, Lord, how can you marry those two? And fourthly, Participate in a targeted initiative of our congregation aimed at a transforming a particular community of solving a specific social problem. The problem with number four is I'm just like, man, God, if only we had a targeted initiative for our congregation aimed at transforming a particular community or solving a specific social problem this Saturday, August 31st. I just was like, man, I wish. Amy Sherman, if only... If only we had an opportunity like that. So that's not guilt. It's just coincidence. But, <laughs> but I, want to, I want to read you a letter that Paul writes to a church in Thessalonica, this little tiny town. And he says something that is, has amazed me. He, and he says this in chapter 4, verse 9. He says, now, about your love. <laughs> Anyone else? Would you be nervous? If the apostle Paul says, now, about how you love people. I'd be like, oh, gosh, please spare me. <laughs> It says, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. How good do you feel if the Apostle Paul literally just wrote a letter and said, hey, you're loving people, which again, by the way, is the goal of the Christian life. He's like, I got nothing to say. You're killing it. I mean, you just feel pretty good, right? Like, that's in the Bible. Like, you're like, sweet. But then he says this, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And, to, and verse 11, I think, is just such a practical way that we can dive into this. And to make this your ambition, to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you. So here it is, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. There it is. Why does your job matter? Well, we understand there's a divine purpose in it. But also, according to this verse, your daily life has the potential to win the imagination and the hearts of those who would have nothing to do with Jesus. But there's something about how you live, this quiet life, working with your hands. Notice it does not mention preaching, prophesying, healing. It just says work. Your daily life in such a way that people actually who would consider themselves on the outside, because God doesn't consider that, but they would consider themselves, I'm an outsider, would look and it would drop respect, which would turn into curiosity, which potentially could turn into an awakening in their own heart. That They're longing and looking for this, this thing that they've been missing. So there's number, one, there's number one, plant gardens. Number two, pursue peace. Pursue peace. It says that seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. 
which is a fascinating line when you realize he's talking about Babylon, one of the most heathenistic cultures that the world has ever known. This is the command. Seek the peace and the prosperity of this. So this is kind of our second point, pursue peace. Now, one of the ways that this is helpful is understand the idea of peace. And if you've been around Light Church for like more than a couple weeks, you've heard the word shalom. And I think it's one of the most defining words and word pictures that we have as a church. And the word shalom in Hebrew is, doesn't mean tranquility. It doesn't mean um, ease. It means everything in its right order. I'm going to say that again. Everything is set. Everything is out of order, out of joint, broken, put together, put in its right place. So we can read it like this. Seek the reordering of Babylon. Seek the shalom of the city, things that are out of order, that are broken. Put them right. Put them back together. And if we, if we read that correctly, that speaks to the what and the how and to the why of what we do. And, and, and to the what specifically. Think about this. Think about the guy who's repairing potholes in Encinitas, which kind of needs to go closer to my house. Anyways, uh, he, he probably just thinks, like, I'm just making a paycheck. But if you were to actually take this verse seriously, he's contributing to the shalom of Encinitas. He's bringing order to a place that was out of order in a very tangible sense. So again, if you can think through your vocation through that lens, what is out of order that you're putting in order to the parent or to the nanny who's correcting not just a behavior but a heart, to the teacher who's captivating the mind of a young student that they could learn and read and transform the world, to the boss that could wake up and say, you know what, I have the ability to add value and quality of life to my employees. You are, you are seeking the, the shalom of the city. You are reordering things in such a way that is bringing heaven to earth because when heaven gets here, when Jesus comes back and sets up shop here, everything will be in its right order. But beyond just the what we do, which we've talked about the last few minutes, it also, it also means how and why we do these things matters. And one of my favorite passages of scriptures when it comes to this idea of how, why are we making peace? Why are we pursuing shalom? is found in Romans 12. And we're going to read it. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage, but here's what I'd like for you to do. Uh, whether it's on the screen, preferably in your own Bible, if you come across a sentence, a line, even a word that grabs your attention, circle it, make a note of it, and would we actually just say, hey, Lord, is there something you're wanting to tell me today of what does it look like to bring about, to pursue, to seek out the shalom of the city, of the town, of the neighborhood, of the family that you have placed me in? So here it is, Romans 12, starting in verse 9. Paul says this, love must be sincere, Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, 
patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Do not repay evil. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Listen to verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, right? If your boss is awful, honor him. Right? I mean, these are just so practical. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. And here, here it is. I can summarize this. How do we bring peace? How do we pursue shalom? It's right here. Overcome evil with good. That's what it looks like. Overcome evil with good. Overcome the brokenness with wholeness. Overcome the darkness with light. Overcome what is out of order with putting it in God's order. This is what, and I love, some of these are so simple. It just says practice hospitality. Invite someone over and make them muffins. Like this is like, how cool, this is kingdom stuff. This is everyday kingdom kind of stuff. Right, if someone's rejoicing, rejoice with them. Go out and go to like Buffalo Wild Wings and like eat some really good food because someone just got a promotion. Celebrate with them. Do, do you understand? You're, you're participating in the divine. You're bringing about God's kingdom. When someone is, is mourning, man, sit with them. Clear out a few hours and just go be with that person. I mean, all of these things that we just would view as ordinary, scripture is trying to grab our attention. No, 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 you don't understand. You are being a sojourner an exile, an ambassador in this world. And lastly, our our third point, pray prosperity. Um, I want to be honest, that was a hard sentence for me to to write. I have, um, because I I think sometimes if we view the idea of prosperity, um, if we ever view the gospel as a means for our own enrichment, above our own salvation. I think that can become dangerous. But here's what I found interesting as I was studying this word. It says, pray for, you know, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. Pray for the peace and the prosperity of the city. As I looked up, well, you know what? It tells us to do that. I'm gonna look up what that word prosperity means. And and what's so interesting to me is the word peace and prosperity are actually the same Hebrew word. It's shalom. Seek the shalom and the shalom of the city. Pray for the shalom and the shalom of the city. Because I was like, pray for the prosperity of Babylon. What do you, I don't understand. But then when I'm like, oh, pray for the shalom of Babylon. That actually makes a lot of sense. Pray that God would begin to do these things. But, but, so the point here is not another word study on prosperity. Because that's the same word. It's just more peace, more shalom. The, the, really, the focus here for me is he doesn't just say seek, pursue shalom, which involves our action, but then he says pray for it. And I want to end tonight's message with this, this call, this exhortation for us to raise the value we place on prayer.
And for me, I've just been convicted. Man, do I, do I pray for Encinitas? Do I pray for my city like it tells me to right here? Do, do, do you pray for the university you attend? Do you pray for the job God has given you? Do you pray over your family? And so I would love for us, again, what, is it, what does it look like for us to be exiles? Pray. Pray for the shalom, for God's peace to come in these different areas, in our city. And as I, and I, was, I was studying about this and kind of and asking the Lord to an increased understanding and value of what prayer does. I came across this quote from Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, and he says this, prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change in the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, Prayer makes it safe for God to give us so many of the unimaginable things we desire. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. We must learn to pray. We have to. And as I was experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit this week to return to prayer, to pray for the peace of my city. I was reminded that this, this church, and I'm talking about the building, this community of people that God has started together, whether you know it or not, is a result of prayer. A couple of years ago, maybe three years ago now, I was sitting at a park in Carlsbad, and I was looking out over Encinitas. My wife and I were in a time of change and transition, and I honestly had no idea what God was doing. And I was sitting at, at this park, and I felt like the Holy Spirit invited me into prayer, and he said, why don't, why don't you ask me what I think about Encinitas? You know it's going to be good when God tells you the question to ask him. <laughs> so I said, and by, and by the way, this does not happen all the time for me. But this was, this was a pivotal point in my life. And so I'm sitting on this park. I'm all by myself. I'm, uh, I'm on this kind of ledge overlooking the city of Encinitas. And I just asked very simply, I said, God, what do you think about Encinitas? And before the words left my mouth, a violent wind started rushing up the hill. And I was so keenly aware of the presence of God like I maybe never have in my entire life. And I, and I covered my head, I remember this, and, and I hear the Holy Spirit speak to me in that moment so clearly. He didn't talk to me about church plants, services, outreach, staff. This is what he said, I love these people. They're surrounded by beauty and I want you to show them who the artist is. And the wind stopped and I wept. I mean, I like lost it. Like, and you just imagine this little old lady walking by with her dog like, oh my gosh. (laughs) 
I, I, I was undone. I literally, at, at this like public park, am just bawling my eyes out because it wasn't even just the words. It was like I got this glimpse of the heart of God, not even all of it, just a glimpse of the heart of God for this city. And I remember calling Jen, still weeping, and I'm like, I think, I think God wants us to plant a church in Encinitas, which was kind of the last thing we wanted to do, just to be honest. It seemed like the hardest thing that could have happened. And I remember we just cried on the phone, and we're like, well, let's, let's do it. Like, let's, this is what God's going to do. And I was just reminded this week, as, I, as I'm studying what it looks like to pray for the shalom of this city, that the Lord's saying, this church was birthed from prayer, and it will be sustained by prayer. So if this is your home, this is your community, I'm inviting you that we would continue to become a people of prayer, that we would love our city. I mean, like, eat in the restaurants, go to the coffee shops, surf at the beaches. And again, if you live in Vista, do it in Vista. Wherever, wherever your home is, make it your home. Go to work with joy, work with fervor, study hard, add to the flourishing of life because we're not going anywhere. God's coming here. Pray for it. Pray for our leaders and our politicians and our mayors. Pray for our teachers and our, and our business leaders. Pray and let's begin to be a church that knows how to be exiles, who knows how to be sojourners, who knows what it looks like to say, this is not my home, but I'm gonna plant gardens. I'm gonna seek shalom and I'm gonna pray for the peace of my city. Because this is a kingdom of God that fits every single color in that pie chart. This is an everyday kingdom. Not a Sunday kingdom, not a church kingdom. This is every day what God is inviting us into. Um, Brandon, if you want to come up here, play some keys. I'd love to, to end um, with this last quote. Um, John Piper, who's another author and pastor, um, has this really short, punchy quote, and I think it just summarizes and wraps it up so well, and he says this, follow Christ. It is costly. You will be in exile in this age, but you will be free. The invitation of Jesus is not that you get to come and experience the best that this life has to offer. His invitation is I'm going to give you so much life that it can't be contained in this one. It's eternal kind of life. But it's gonna come now. I want it to come now through you, in you, through you. And it's costly. To live as a sojourner in exile or to be a foreigner in a land that you don't know, it, it's costly and uncomfortable. And if you follow Jesus for any amount of time, you know that tension. You're like, man, I, I don't feel like I fit here. I'm the only one of my coworkers. I'm the only one in my class. And it feels odd. I want to let you know that probably means you're doing something right. It's costly, but you're free. You're free because if this is your home, this is all that you have, I would be shocked if you are not racked with anxiety and stress 
because you'll be grasping for this thing that is elusively falling through your fingertips. But if this is not your home, and you are longing for a heavenly one, like it says in Hebrews 11, then you can live in this world of peace. You can go to your crummy job and bring joy because you have something that the world is craving, and that's eternity. It's a kingdom that is far greater than what this world is trying to sell us. You guys bow your heads with me. Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. 